Sister Watkins, that singing from your beautiful chorus was truly outstanding. The young ladies looked like they enjoyed it. The young men appeared as though they wished they were somewhere else. <laughs> so it has ever been. Not long ago, a visitor asked me the question, what is there to see when I'm here in Salt Lake City? Almost instinctively, I suggested a tour of Temple Square, maybe a look at the open pit copper mine at Bingham. I even suggested a drive up one of the nearby canyons and a swim in the Great Salt Lake. I think that a fear of being misunderstood, however, kept me from suggesting to him have you considered spending an hour or two in one of our local cemeteries? I didn't reveal to him that wherever I travel, I attempt to pay a visit to the cemetery. I find that it's a time of reflection, of contemplation, on the meaning of life and the certainty of death. In that little tiny cemetery at Santa Clara, Utah, an equally tiny town, I noted a preponderance of Swiss names on the weathered tombstones. I calculated that those individuals had left their verdant Switzerland and, in response to the call, come to Zion, had settled the little communities where they now rest in peace. They endured spring floods, summer drought, scant harvest, backbreaking labors. I believe they left a legacy of sacrifice. The largest cemeteries and the ones which evoke the most tender of emotions are honored as the resting places of those men who, while wearing the uniform of their country, died in that cauldron of conflict we know as war. One thinks of vanished hopes, shattered dreams, grief-filled hearts, and lives cut short by the sharp scythe of war. Acres and acres of neat white crosses mark the cemeteries of France and Belgium, reminding one of the terrible toll of World War I. In fact, the city of Verdun, France, is itself a virtual cemetery. For each spring, the blade of the farmer's plow turns skyward a bit of a rusted helmet here or a twisted gun barrel there, grim reminders of the millions upon millions of men who literally soaked the soil with the blood of their lives. A visit to Punchbowl Military Cemetery in Hawaii or perhaps the Military Cemetery Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific in Manila brings one to an awareness that all who died in World War II do not rest in fields of quiet green. Many of them slipped beneath the waves of the very oceans on which they served and on which they died. Among the many thousands who gave their lives at Pearl Harbor was a sailor by the name of William Ball of Fredericksburg, Iowa. What distinguished him from the many others who perished on that fateful day in December of 1941 was not any particular act of heroism, but the tragic chain of events which his death set in motion back home in nearby Waterloo, Iowa, 
When his friends, the Sullivan brothers, heard of the passing of their buddy, they marched out together and enlisted in the Navy, determined to avenge the death of their friend. They requested permission of the Navy if they could serve together, and their request was honored. But then on November 14th, of 1942, the cruiser on which the five Sullivan brothers served, the USS Juno, was hit and sunk in action, a terrible battle, off Guadalcanal in the Solomon Islands. Two months were to pass before Mrs. Thomas Sullivan received the news, and when it came, it came not by the usual telegram, but by special envoy. All five Can you imagine? All five of her sons were reported missing in action in the South Pacific and presumed dead. Their bodies were never recovered. One line only, spoken by one person only, provides a fitting epitaph. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Frequently, the life of one person and its impact on the lives of others is not spoken of and rarely known. Such is the example of a teacher of girls, 12-year-old beehive girls in Mutual. Oh, my, how the teacher loved them. She had no children of her own, though she and her husband dearly longed for children, so she showered her affections upon her special girls to whom she taught gospel truths and living lessons of life. And then tragedy struck. Illness came, followed by death and the passing of the teacher, just 27 years of age. Her special girls determined that each Memorial Day they would make a pilgrimage of prayer to the grave of their teacher. First there were seven, then there were four, then two, and eventually just one, who makes that annual pilgrimage, each year placing a hand-picked bouquet of iris by the headstone of her teacher, a symbol of heartfelt gratitude. This year marked the 25th consecutive Memorial Day that she has visited the grave of her teacher. Today she herself is a teacher of girls. Little wonder that she's so successful. She mirrors the reflection of that teacher from whom came her inspiration. And I should like to testify that the life that teacher lived and the lessons that teacher taught are not buried beneath that headstone, but they live on in the personality she helped to shape and the lives she so selflessly enriched. One thinks of another teacher, the master teacher. Once with his finger in the sand, he wrote a message. Now the winds of time have long since erased the words that he wrote, but not the life that he lived. All that we know about those whom we have loved and lost, wrote Thornton Wilder, is that they would have us remember them with an increased realization of their reality. The greatest gift that the living can give the dead is not grief, but gratitude. Just two years ago, 
in the peaceful little Heber Valley east of Salt Lake City, a loving father, a devoted mother, returned to that haven called home and found their three eldest sons lay dead. The night had been bitter cold, and the wind was fierce as it whipped the snow from the roof, covering the chimney, thereby releasing deadly carbon monoxide fumes throughout the house. I shall ever remember attending the funeral services of the Keller boys. The entire community had placed aside their daily activities. Children were excused from school that all might come and pay their respects. As long as time and memory endure, I shall remember the scene of those three shiny caskets, followed by grief-stricken parents and grandparents, slowly making their way to the front of the chapel. The first speaker was the local high school wrestling coach. He spoke of Lewis, the oldest boy. He said that he was not the best wrestler on the team, but that no one tried harder. He said that what he lacked in native ability, he made up in determination of heart. The next speaker, a youth leader, spoke of Travis. He described him as exemplary in the ironic priesthood, in scouting, in school, a model to follow. And finally, a tall, obviously intelligent, dignified elementary school teacher spoke of Jason, the youngest. She described him as quiet, even shy. And then, without embarrassment, she said that the most beautiful letter she had ever received, she had received, came from Jason. In the scrawl of a boy, he had penned a message consisting of just three words, I love you. She could scarcely continue, so near to the surface were her emotions. Through the tears and the sorrow of that day, eternal lessons were learned. I noted that a wrestling coach had made a determination that he would look beyond outward ability. He would gaze upon the heart of every boy. I noted that a youth leader would make certain that all the young men and the young women would have the full program of the Church. And I watched that elementary school teacher She just looked at the little boys and girls like we have before us today, classmates of Jason. They had just concluded singing, I am a child of God. She could not speak. But her eyes reflected the message of her soul. And that message was this, As long as life endures, I promise that every boy and every girl with whom I have any contact will be aided in his or her quest for truth, will be guided in the development of God-given talents, and indeed will be introduced to the wonderful world of service. And the audience, including elders Marvin J. Ashton and Thomas S. Monson, we won't be the same either, for we made a pledge that we would live closer to God. Our inspiration, those Keller boys, whose mortal missions had been concluded, and the fortitude of their parents, who seemed to exemplify, We will trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not to our own understanding. In all our ways acknowledge Him, knowing that He will direct our path. 
With permission of Sister Keller, I should like to read to you a letter which she sent to me. To me, it's very touching. We do have days and nights that right now seem so overwhelming. The change in our home life has been so drastic. With almost half our family gone, how the cooking and the washing and even the shopping are different. We miss the noise and the clutter, the teasing and the playing together. Such are gone. Sunday is so quiet. We miss seeing the sacrament blessed and passed by our sons. Sunday was truly our family together day. We ponder the thought, no missions, no weddings, no grandchildren. We would not ask for their return, but we could not say we would ever have willingly given them up. We have returned to our Church duties and our family responsibilities. Our desire is to so live that the Keller family will be a forever family. To the Kellers, to the Sullivans, to all who have loved and lost, may I declare the witness of my soul and the testimony of my heart, the experience of my life. I should like to do so. We all know that we lived in a spirit world with our Heavenly Father before we came to earth, and then we were born into mortality, here to obtain a body, to gain experience. Some live but a moment in mortality, while others live long upon the land. The true measure is not how long we live, but how well we live. And then comes death and that next chapter on our eternal journey. Let me tell you about that chapter. Years ago, I stood by the bedside of a young man, a father of two, as he hovered between now and eternity. He turned to me and, in a pleading tone, said to me, Bishop, where does my spirit go when I die? I sought heavenly inspiration. I noted a book resting on the nightstand by his bed. I picked it up, and as I stand before you here today, that book opened to the 40th chapter of Alma, and I read, Now, my son, here is somewhat more I would say unto thee, for I perceive that thy mind is worried concerning the resurrection of the dead. Now concerning the state of the soul between death and the resurrection, behold, it has been made known unto me by an angel that the spirits of all men, as soon as they are departed from this mortal body, yea, the spirits of all men, whether they be good or evil, are taken home to that God who gave them life. And then shall it come to pass that the spirits of those who are righteous are received into a state of happiness, which is called paradise, a state of rest, a state of peace, where they shall rest from all their troubles and from all care and sorrow. My young friend closed his eyes, whispered a quiet thank you, relaxed the grip on my hand, and silently slipped away to that paradise about which we had spoken. After paradise comes the resurrection, that glorious resurrection, when spirit and body shall be united, never again to be separated. As the Master said to the grieving Martha, 
I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And to his disciples he comforted, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, giveth I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. This prophetic promise was fulfilled when Mary and the other Mary approached the tomb to care for the body of the Lord. They were astonished when they found that the huge stone at the entrance of the tomb had been rolled away. Gone was the body of the Lord Jesus. They beheld two angels and heard the divine pronouncement, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. This is the clarion call of Christendom. The reality of the resurrection brings that peace which surpasses understanding. It comforts those whose loved ones rest in Flanders fields or who slip beneath the angry deep or who are at peace in tiny cemeteries like Santa Clara, Utah or peaceful Heber Valley. It is a universal truth. As the least of his disciples, May I raise my voice and declare to you my solemn testimony that death has been overcome. Victory over the tomb has been won. How I pray that those three words, made sacred by him who fulfilled them, will find lodgment in every heart. Love them. Cherish them. Honor them. He is risen. Oh, this would be my prayer, and I ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.